Let's uh, turn again, turn with me again to Hebrews chapter 2. We're there again last week and today. Um, next week is a, is a standalone uh, a New Year's thing. It's, it's the first. I ha- it's the first. Uh, so I had to do something about the new year and, and resolutions, some, some things I've done in the past, and uh, I'm eager to do it again. It's, it's my, uh, my um, morbid, I hope, uh, Christ-like view on the future <laughs> and resolutions and such. So, so I, I hope that you might look forward to, to trying to think about the future and think about resolutions from a biblical perspective. That'll be next Sunday. I'll be gone the 8th. Uh, I'll be away. And then on the 15th, my plan would be, Lord willing, of course, to, to rejoin Paul in Romans uh, on January 15th. But today, finishing this little two-parter in Hebrews chapter 2, the title, Flesh and Blood Jesus, on this Christmas morning. Let me pray once again and uh, pray the Lord's blessing as we read the Word and, and, and work through it. And then we'll read Hebrews 2, 10 to 18. Father, thank You again for all that You are for us in Jesus. And now as we look uh, to Your Word to be reminded and even taught wonderful things about Him, about You, about this great salvation, We pray, Father, that You would bless us, that You would bless us with eyes to see, with hearts to receive, the hearts that would would submit to what we encounter here now, and that You would bless people, that You would bless these people here with salvation, with, with assurance, and with growth, all for Your glory, Father, and we pray it in Your Son's name, amen. Okay, so this is Hebrews 2, 10 through uh, 18. We covered verses 10 and 11 last Sunday and, and just briefly touched on verses 12 and 13. We're, we're going to be on about 14 to 18 today in the main. I just jumped to, to those, 14 to 18. But let's start at 10 to get this whole chunk. For it was fitting that He, God the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, Jesus, God the Son, perfect through suffering. Verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them, that is, the children of God, believers, brothers, saying... I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Verse 14 now. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that... Through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely 
It is not angels that He helps, but He helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, He had to be made like His brothers in every respect so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. The Word of the Lord. Again, last Sunday we considered verses 10 and 11, really from the perspective of Christmas, that is from the perspective of the incarnation, the infleshedness of Jesus Christ or His coming as a babe in a manger. And I said last Sunday that Christmas is for sinners, and in fact that was the title of the sermon. I said last Sunday that Christmas is for sinners, which means that Christmas is only the beginning. What Jesus came to do, He would not fully accomplish and complete until He would ascend a hill outside of Jerusalem, be nailed to a cross, and die for sinners, and then physically rise from the dead. Already, the author of Hebrews had put the beginning and the end, as it were, of Jesus' earthly life together for His readers in the verse right before where we started reading today. Chapter 2, verse 9 reads this way, but we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, incarnation, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor, there's resurrection and ascension, because of the suffering of death, crucifixion, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. But verse 9 is really a bit introductory, and in that a bit poetic, even cryptic, announcing bits that He would pick up, and it needs to be fleshed out. He knew that. He planned to do it, and, and in our text for today, Hebrews 2, 14 to 18 specifically, the author then continues on this, to make good on this promise to flesh this out, to develop his argument in the logical flow of God's gospel in the life of His Son, Jesus Christ. Here, too, we have both the beginning and the end of Jesus' earthly life, both the, the incarnation or birth of Jesus and the crucifixion, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, but explained further. These verses make clear why Jesus came. This is what we want to remember and we want to rehearse on Christmas Day, is it not? These verses then make clear why Jesus came. They make clear the purpose, that is, of His coming. They also make clear how He did it and why it had to be done just the way He did it. It was fitting, the author wrote in verse 10. Did you see? It was fitting. It was all fitting. It was all designed beforehand, and therefore it was all necessary. It had to then happen this way, down to the smallest of details, that God should effect His glorious saving purposes for His people and for His glory through Jesus Christ in just 
this meticulously precise way. Now, um, points. How many do we have? I didn't, I don't know. A couple? Let's see. Three, I think. It's three. (laughs) It's a a weird thing how, how you can work on a sermon and then not know something like that. We'll put it out of mind or whatever. So there's three sections today as we break up the text. The first one is verses 14 and 15, and this is the longer one. This may be why I wasn't thinking about it so much as three equal points. This, this, this first one's the big one. Verses 14 and 15, the gospel in two verses. Point one, verses 14 and 15, the gospel in two verses. I'm not sure uh, why, I, I'll surmise, uh, I'll, I'll try a guess, but I, I'm not sure why these two verses aren't used more as a simple explanation of the good news about Jesus Christ, of what He came to do and how it's good news for sinners like you and me. I don't know why it's not used more. Christians could easily turn to these verses when asked to explain the essence of the good news, and with minimal explanation, I think, the gospel could be clearly presented and explained. I I suspect maybe it's because overall Hebrews itself is a difficult letter difficult to, to get into, difficult to kind of put on and, and, and figure out. And, and these verses are in the middle of a fairly deep and involved argument that stretches through the whole of the first two chapters and really the whole letter. So that's my guess as to why they're sort of tucked away and hidden and not thought about a lot. But man, it's the gospel in two verses, and we'll, we'll tear into it. Let's walk through verses 14 and 15, our goal being to see and explain the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ. 14a, we'll we'll break it up, 14a reads, again look there, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. The, ch- the children. Here in, in verse 14 are, are the same children in verse 13. They are the children God has given to Jesus. It's not all the little children of the world. It's not, that, it's not referring to that. It's referring to the children God has given to Jesus. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. He will save His people from their sins. The children here in verse 14 then are the same children in verse 13. They are the brothers and sisters of Jesus, verses 11 and 12. They are the many sons God will bring to glory, verse 10. For whom Jesus was sent to gather, for whom Jesus tasted death, verse 9 and 17. They are the offspring of Abraham, verse 16, that is, those who by God's grace have the same faith that Abraham had. That is, God made, wrought, unbreakable, persevering faith or trust in the Messiah promising, in the Messiah sending Father God who has covenanted with Himself to save sinners for His glory and their joy in Him. They are the children here. In sending 
Jesus, God has the salvation of His children especially in view. He had a definite plan to save a defined and chosen family, the people for whom the sacrifice of Christ would be offered and satisfied fully. God had this in view before the foundation of the world. Now, if I could pit stop, I wouldn't need to do this here, but it's true that John 3.16, God so loved the world that He gave His Son Jesus, but it's also true that God was especially gathering the children of God who are scattered abroad, John 11.52, Christ's flock, the sheep for whom He came and the sheep for whom He died, and the sheep that would recognize His voice in the proclamation of the good news. In sending Christ then to the whole world, to the whole of His creation and offering Him to all, God is loving the world, but His design from the beginning was that salvation would be infallibly and totally effected for His, verse 14, children. says there in 14a as well, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. The children share in flesh and blood. So that's us right now, isn't it? Flesh and blood. I mean, you don't really want to double check at this point. We'll leave all that happening underneath our skin at this point, flesh and blood. Well, this isn't really saying anything gross here. In fact, it's, it's just referring to our humanity. Our, uh, sorry, it was uh, Schaefer, Francis Schaefer. I was going to say R.C. Sproul, but it's Francis Schaefer who, who referred to it here as, as the thisness, this, this, this stuff the thisness of us, this stuff, flesh and blood, this stuff, our essence. We are flesh and blood and fallen in it, finite and frail, decaying and dying. The children share in flesh and blood. And children is a good word, I think. We are helpless when it comes right down to it with regard to us being in flesh and blood and fallen in it especially regarding the one enemy we cannot defeat, whereas children before a beast, we are ruled by it, by the fear of the beast. Children share in flesh and blood. 14b, let's add on a chunk. 14b, look there. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself, this is Jesus, Likewise, likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood. Now, don't miss here. There are more explicit places in the Scriptures that teach this point, but don't miss here that Jesus, the assumption in, excuse me, in 14b, clearly is that Jesus existed before He partook of the same things as us. 
He was before He became like us. Just like you heard in Adam's reading of John 1. He was, and then He became something more than what He was. He took, He partook of the same things as us, that is, flesh and blood. He was, is, always will be, but He was before also the eternal Son of God before He took on flesh and became Jesus the Christ. As that eternal divine Son, God Himself, He partook of flesh and blood. He became a human like you and me. He didn't appear to be like us. He became like us in the same way, except we're told later by the same author, chapter 4, without sin, except without sin. He came to earth and took on flesh and blood and clothed His deity with humanity. That's Christmas. Jesus became fully human while remaining fully God. This is the great mystery of the incarnation, the the infleshing of the Son of God. But it is at the very heart of Christianity and is what the Bible clearly teaches. There is no Christianity without this very precise reality, this truth. You cannot waver on this. Jesus, the Son of God, while remaining fully God, becomes fully human. The God-man. God, yet without the unapproachable glory, a glory seen only through the eyes of faith, again, John 1, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. Man, yet without sin, limited physically then, in some sense like you and me, mortal in His humanity for sure, frail, made of dust like you and me. Why? 14c. Look there, let's add that. That, so there's purpose. That, so that, through death. Through death. He did this to die. That's quite a leap. From womb to tomb, you might say. John Piper quoted as saying, quote, He became a man because the death of a man who was more than man was needed. The incarnation was God's locking Himself into death row, end quote. The reason Jesus became a human being, a man, was to die. That was the plan and purpose of His coming to rise from the dead. If you don't know that, you don't know Christianity. And if you think the death of Christ was an accident or unplanned for or plan B or however else it is said these days, then you don't know Christianity or What you are describing is decidedly not Christianity. Death was the plan and purpose. Death was not a risk. Let's go, let's go, let's do it, Jesus, but there's a risk. 
They might catch you and kill you. Oh, I'll accept the... No, it's not a risk. It was the necessary plan. Because as God, the Son of God could not die for sinners. But as a man, He could. A fitting substitute was needed. A sacrifice was needed in our place. Our death was required, still is. But if there was going to be a substitute, a death in our place, He would need to be like us. But He would need to be more than us. Since a man cannot die to pay for the sins of another man. But God can do that. If God becomes a man and dies, therefore, the Son of God was born to die and to die for the children of God that God had given to Jesus to save them. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10, 45. So, let's add 14D, the last bit. 14C, we had added that through death, 14D, add, look there, he, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. There's uh, Piper again. I don't remember if this is all from the same sermon of his, but quoting him nonetheless. Quote, In dying, Christ, I love these images that he uses, defanged the devil. In dying, Christ defanged the devil. How? Piper goes on. By covering all our sin, that is, of those who are saved through faith alone in Christ alone by God's grace alone, the children of God. This means that Satan has no legitimate grounds to accuse the children of God before God. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, Romans 8.33. On what grounds does God justify? Through the blood of Jesus, Romans 5.9. Satan's ultimate weapon then against us is our own sin. If the death of Jesus takes it away, the chief weapon of the devil is taken out of his hands. He cannot make a case for our death penalty then because the judge has acquitted us on the basis of and by the death of his son. End quote. So, is it any wonder then how hard Satan tried to turn Jesus away from the cross. You can do whatever you want, Jesus. In fact, I'll bankroll it if you will not go to that cross. But that's why he came. The death of Jesus would be the defeat and ultimate destruction of Satan, stripping him of his power over the children of God, that is, the power of death. Satan is still around, though, as you know, along with all of his demonic forces. I remember being told once, it still makes sense to me, that probably you've never run into Satan. 
but you've probably run into his demons. He's only in one place at one time. Satan is not like God. He's not omnipresent. He's not omniscient. Anyways, he's still around, though, and his forces. But the great lyrics from the great song, his rage we can endure now, for lo, his doom is sure because of the death of Jesus Christ so that he might destroy, destroy. That's the first there in 14D, the first thing that results from the death of Jesus. But there's a second D which we add in verse 15 that Christ accomplishes in and through His death that goes hand in hand with the destruction of the devil and of His power over us through the wielding of death. We who believe are delivered. Verse 15, look there. Verse 15, and that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. 15, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Let me quote uh, Piper once more. That makes three. That's a hat trick. Let's, uh, let's, let's do it. A short, brief quote. So we are free from the fear of death. God has justified us. Satan cannot overturn that decree. And God means for our ultimate safety to have an immediate effect then on our lives. He means for the happy ending to take away the slavery and fear of the now. If we do not need to fear our last and greatest enemy, death, then we do not need to fear anything. We can be free, free for joy, free for others. What a great Christmas present from God to His children and from us to the world." End quote. So, here's the flow of thought then in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. The children of God are human. All of us humans are, well, human. The children of God too. Therefore, Jesus became human so that He might die for the children of God to nullify the deadly power of the devil, thus ensuring His eventual destruction, so that all who believe and abide, real Christians, thus proving that they are the children of God, might be freed from slavery to the fear of death, the consequences of sin, and live in freedom now and forever in the family of God. That's the gospel. That's the good news for sinners about Jesus. So if someone were to ask you why Jesus came here, consider turning to Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 and tell them that Jesus came to die so that He might overthrow Satan's dominion and strip Him of the power of death and set us free. The children of God held captive, now free in Christ. Now, a few questions, and, and you might either thank God that you are saved, did you think about these questions, or realizing, admitting that you are not, that you would turn to Jesus and be freed and saved.
One, two, three, four. Are you held in bondage and fear by the sure prospect of death? Do you run from the thought? It's a one-to-one, you know, for you and for me, the ratio. Are you in fear? Are you gripped by fear of death? Do you know the problem faced by all of us humans that is sin and the consequences of our sin, namely death and damnation forever? Do you see why Jesus came and who He is and what He offers to all of us? And have you come to Him, embraced Him, having repented and believed and by God's grace abiding, repenting and believing as you go, depending on Christ for life and health and breath and and everything? And though you must face death, are you free from the chains of its fear through faith, trust in Jesus Christ, knowing that for you, in Christ, death is the doorway to eternal life in glory with Him? Christian, through Christ, And because of Christ, we can, by God's grace, be calm and serene in living and dying because we have Jesus Christ for us and going before us. Remember the trailblazer, pioneer, cutting the path through the desert for us? Why? I hope you take that seriously with the weight and consideration worthy of the God who sends this message to you and this Messiah to you. Now, in verse 16, uh, briefly here, we have what seems to be a uh, strange sort of comment, almost parenthetical, you might, I don't know, it's about angels, I don't know, what's he talking about? Angels and the offspring of Abraham. It reads this way. Look there. 16. He thinks it's connected, so oh boy, it's connected. For surely, it's not angels that that Jesus helps, but He helps the offspring of Abraham. Well, as it turns out, I know it's a little tough. You drop in, parachute in, and drop into Hebrews 2. But as it turns out, it's, it's not actually, if you, if you remember, not all that strange for the author of Hebrews to mention angels at this point in the letter. He's referred often to them, and in fact, angels have played quite a large role in his message of encouragement to the original readers, who, because of increasing persecution at Rome, were being tempted to turn back from all of this Jesus stuff to the law of Moses. The heat on you will go down if you would just let go of this... Jesus' stuff and go back to the law, the message delivered through angels was the law. But the author has been telling them, don't turn back from the message delivered through the Son, the superior message, not given by angels, but given through the Son of God. Jesus is far superior to angels. The angels worship and serve Jesus. 
the messenger and effector of the new covenant. You wouldn't turn back, would you, to angels from the Son of God? And so here he reminds us again. It isn't angels who delivered the message of the gospel, but one far superior, namely Jesus. And it isn't angels who are the beneficiaries of Christ's advent and incarnation and crucifixion and resurrection and ascension. Who is it? The beneficiaries. Oh, it's the offspring of Abraham. It's the children of Abraham. And who is that? In the Old Testament, it's Israel. But more properly, it's the faithful remnant of Israel, the believing remnant. In the New Testament, we realize that there has always been one people of God, those who have that Abraham-like believing, that Abraham-like faith in the Messiah promising and then Messiah delivering God. So, the offspring of Abraham is yet another way for the author of Hebrews to describe the same group of people that he has been describing throughout these verses. It's the brothers and sisters of Jesus, the children of God that He's given to Jesus, the many sons God will bring to glory. They are also the offspring, the children of Abraham, because the God-wrought faith that saves them is the same God-wrought faith that saved Abraham. And it is these that Jesus Christ helps now and forever. Don't turn back. And now the author doubles back and doubles down and expresses the same truths but takes us deeper still. Point two and three are brief, much more brief. Two, point two, verse 17, a deeper look, this reference uh, to a priest and a propitiation. A deeper look, a priest and propitiation. It's one of those words that, that every time you come upon it, you're like, do I know what that means? Let's go, let's go look again. Let's go look that up again. You glance down to the study notes. Propitiation, goodness. 17a, look there with me. Therefore, he had to be made like his brother's in every respect. So, so, everything that the author has described of the coming of Jesus since verse 9 or so had to happen. Jesus had to be. It was required that He be made like His brothers and sisters in every respect that is to be completely like them. Again, except without sin, Hebrews 4.15. Or He could not have been the spotless lamb and substitute required. And now we get a big so that, 17b, look there, so that, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful, become, interesting, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God as one mediator between God and man, the Christ. High priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. I think what we have here is how the power of death is taken from Satan such that he can't attack us with it nor accuse us anymore, we who are in Christ. Jesus strips the devil of his power in death by making propitiation 
for our sins. We should just say it. We need to remind ourselves what that means. But let's just say that. Jesus strips the devil of his power in death, the devil's power in death, wielding death, by making propitiation for our sins, the sins of the children of God. How does this work? How does this work? Well, again, that, that big theological word, propitiation, you, you, you can say propitiation if you'd like. I don't think there's any rule. It's kind of a Habakkuk, Habakkuk kind of a thing. I, I, I'm on propitiation these days. I don't know if I've always said it that way, but I do right now. Propitiation simply means that Jesus takes away God's anger at us for our sin and rebellion. When Jesus dies, He Himself is perfectly innocent without sin. As priest, He administers the sacrifice unto God, and the offering He offers is is Himself the perfect God-man, the perfect substitute, the spotless Lamb of God. His death, then, is to bear the guilt and punishment of our sins, not His own sins, since He had none. And when our punishment falls on Him, it is taken away from us. And God's wrath against our sin is satisfied. That's propitiation. God's justice is satisfied. He loved us enough to put His own Son forward to absorb the the punishment we deserved so that He could demonstrate that He is just and faithful in dealing with sin and merciful in dealing with sinners. This, if you must know, is, is the heart of the great gospel. Your sin must be dealt with. And this is how Jesus does it. This is why the coming and dying and rising of Jesus Christ is such great news for sinners like you and me. Christ dying in our place and removing God's righteous anger from us, absorbing it in Himself so that we then could be brought near to God, covered in Christ's righteousness and saved to the uttermost forever. Jesus is a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, making propitiation for the sins of the people, the children of God, all who by God's grace believe. Point three, verse 18 alone and briefly. Sinners saved and sinners helped. Verse 18, sinners saved and sinners helped. This is great encouragement to suffering and tempted Christians at Rome in the first century who were facing increasing persecution or suffering and tempted Christians in Brookings looking out into 2023. I had, <laughs> I had, to, I had to change that at some point during the week because it, it once said 2013. I look, look back. <laughs> I first preached something like this. Ten years ago, it's funny thinking about 2013 as an unknown, but it was that day. But here it is again, a new year in front of us, a future unknown filled with new challenges, new trials, new sufferings yet unknown. 
We'll talk actually about that next Sunday, should the Lord tarry and should I make it there, the thing about the New Year's thing and resolutions and all that. I'm going to talk about that, and, and I like that one a lot. I, I hope you'll come. All right, verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted. Hmm. He's able to help those who are being tempted. Brothers and sisters, do you know that the reason Jesus can be your perfect helper in your time of need is because He Himself suffered when tempted while being partakers with us in this flesh and blood, this thisness? Here is an example. That thing people do to me uh, when they say, ah, this is theology, you and your theology. Man, I get that all the time. Here is an example of deep theology working very super practically in the life of the believer. Because Jesus partook also of this very flesh and blood, because he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect, except without sin, not only was he therefore enabled to be our substitute and Savior, ensuring the destruction of the one who had the power of death over us by taking that power from him and thereby delivering us from him and from death and the fear of it, but he also became qualified and able to help those of his brothers and sisters who are this very moment being tempted. Tempted to despair. Tempted to turn away from the Father. Tempted toward fear of men. Tempted toward the fear of death. Tempted toward self-pity. Tempted toward bitterness or resentment, anger, lust, even toward unbelief. Jesus is able to help those who are His, not just willy-nilly, bippity-boppity-boo. He, he achieved it and learned it and became able because of the incarnation in all of its theological intricacies and precisions about which you've just studied right here. Jesus is able to help those who are His, those whom the Father has given Him, and He will come to help because He is faithful and merciful and more pressingly because He knows from his own agonizing experience, lasting through it way farther than you and me, just what you are experiencing and more. And he knows exactly what you need to overcome it because he came and he overcame every temptation he faced all the way through it, unlike you and me. Our Savior and High Priest has real and total sympathy and compassion for what we are going through, and He is ready 
from His throne of grace by means of His Spirit in His people to help, to give everything you need. What a salvation is this. We have one who is mighty to save. In this respect, He's not like us at all. And yet, to achieve this salvation, He came descending from heaven and became like us to function as high priest and at the same time to function as the sacrifice itself to substitute Himself in the place of sinners absorbing the wrath of God on our behalf. And because He became like us in every respect except without sin, He knows what it is like. What a salvation is this. What a Savior is this. A Savior like us in His coming. A Savior for us in His suffering and death. A Savior with us in our suffering and death. And with Him, in Him, there is sure and ultimate deliverance and full and forever joy with God. Merry Christmas. But it is all the more important that I say, come to Jesus. Believe. Abide. Be saved. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word apart from which we would be lost and uh, listless in this lost world. But with You, we have everything, every promise for everything good. You've told us You work all things together for good for those who love You and are called according to Your purpose. All this achieved by Christ and His coming, His perfect life, His sacrificial substitutionary death, His affirming, justifying resurrection from the dead, His ascension to power, the sending of His Spirit, Your Spirit, and the keeping and the preserving. What a salvation, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.